Week 6 Lecture, February 21st, Fact-Checking Strategies and Building a Strong Argument. Here we are at Week 6 already, just about halfway through the semester and marching closer to spring break. This week, we're talking about two really important topics, fact-checking and building up your argument academically. Both will be important to the literature review you put together for this class. First, let's talk about what fact-checking is. It's a strategy for verifying information you find in the course of your research. So basically, it's exactly what it sounds like. You'll hear me talk about journalists a lot in this class because effective journalists are strong researchers. And in this case, they're also the original fact checkers. Here's an example. Let's say you write for the Argo, that's Stockton student newspaper in case you haven't heard, and you come across a story that's going to significantly impact a lot of your friends. You've heard the board of trustees intends to raise tuition 20% next year. And of course you're outraged. But your job as a journalist is to report the facts and let the audience decide for themselves how they feel. So you start with the standard reporter's questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? Who is involved? That's easy. The Board of Trustees makes the decision and students and their families are impacted. What is happening? According to rumor, tuition is going to be raised by 20%. When is it happening? It sounds like it will happen in the next academic year, so 2024-25. Where is it happening? At Stockton. Why is it happening? Who the heck knows? Because universities are terrible at managing their budgets? How is it happening? Well, based on past experience, students will probably just receive a higher tuition bill in the mail, or however the university sends out bills. You've started in a good place with what you think are the facts. But going back through the questions, you realize some of your answers are based on your assumptions. And actually, the whole story is based on a rumor you've heard. So, as a journalist, you're not totally comfortable writing a public article that's probably going to make people really mad without knowing whether it's factual or not. This isn't TikTok, after all. What do you do? You check your facts. There are several ways to fact-check your information, but I find the SIFT method both easy and effective. And since you really like your Intro to Research class, you decide to follow your instructor's lead. SIFT is an acronym that describes a four-step process for checking pretty much any information you find. One, first, stop. Honestly, this is a good step for most things, not just fact-checking. Like when you get in an argument with your significant other and your gut instinct is to just talk over them repeatedly until they finally come to see and obviously agree with your point. That doesn't usually work, does it? Stopping means taking a breath and asking yourself why you think what you do. From a fact-checking perspective, it means asking where you got your information and whether you trust that source. Stopping also prevents you from sharing information that could be wrong. So, in the case of the rising tuition, that means asking yourself whether you trust the person from whom you heard the rumor. 2. Next, investigate the source. This doesn't have to be a lengthy process, but it should definitely be part of your process. Let's say the person who told you about the 20% tuition hike is a student worker in the president's office. That could make her a reliable source, but then again, why would a staff member in the president's office tell her about the supposed tuition thing before it was announced to the rest of the university? So you decide to do a little lateral reading about her, and you check all the social media feeds to find out what you can. We'll talk about lateral reading more in a minute. You're in luck. She's everywhere online, and it looks like she has a lot to say about a lot of stuff. It also looks like plenty of people disagree with her, because they're constantly arguing with claims she makes. That's not a good indicator of her reliability. Three, your next step, find better coverage. So you've determined this source isn't that reliable, but
but you're still interested in the claim and you really want to write a story about it. After all, students deserve to know if they can expect a huge bill in the summer. You make a list of places you might further investigate the claim, this time with more reliable sources. You could ask staff in the president's office directly, though you're not sure if they'll be willing to talk, since this news hasn't been spread widely yet. You decide it's worth the risk, so you send the president's assistant an email requesting an interview about the possibility of tuition going up in the coming year. She responds that the president is not available, but that he has the following statement to make about the issue. Stockton University regularly assesses its financial needs and makes every attempt to avoid raising tuition to meet those needs, especially in these challenging economic times. The Board of Trustees has been in discussions about how to address future budget shortfalls responsibly, but no decisions have been made yet. Hmm, so the Board has been talking about this. Interesting. Time for the last step in the SIFT process. 4. Trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. One of the main challenges you had in accepting your fellow students' report that tuition would be rising 20% next year is that you didn't really have context for that quote-unquote fact. You only heard it was going up, but you didn't hear where she got that information, so you can't determine whether it's reliable or not. But the President's office mentioned in the email that the Board of Trustees, who you know ultimately determines tuition rates for the school, has been talking about this. As a journalist, you also know that certain parts of board meetings are public record. So you decide to do a bit of digging in the board minutes and agendas to see if you can figure out where the student got this claim. You look back over the last six months of meetings and notice a pattern. Tuition has been the focus of discussion for quite a while, and the board seems to be trying to figure out a solution to the university's budget shortfall that does not mean one sharp increase in tuition for students. Though they haven't made any decisions yet, they have discussed the possibility of making small tuition increases over the next four academic years culminating in a roughly 20% tuition increase over a four-year period. Aha! Now you think you understand where the confusion came from. Maybe the student overheard someone mention a 20% increase, but she didn't understand that wasn't supposed to happen next year. Now you feel more confident in your findings because you've checked your facts. As a journalist, you've done your due diligence and investigated the facts until you were satisfied you could write a good story for the Argo. You also decide to include a statement that the Board of Trustees has not made a final decision on the proposed plan yet, just to be fair to all parties. It stinks that a tuition increase is probably coming, but at least it's not as bad as you thought. And this is what fact-checking looks like. Let me also say here, I have no insider knowledge about tuition increases at Stockton, so this story is completely hypothetical. But it's a pretty typical demonstration of how people hear part of a story and spread it around like they know what they're talking about. Maybe you can think of examples from your own life? And surprise of surprises, the internet is full of this kind of rumor spreading, even on quote-unquote reliable news and academic sites. Fact-checking is an excellent habit to get into. The question that comes up most often for students is, when do I need to fact-check my information? In general, I'd recommend fact-checking anything that isn't common knowledge, like, for example, gravity is real, or the fact that Abe Lincoln was assassinated. Even more importantly, if your thesis hinges on specific facts, make sure those facts are accurate. The fact-checking process doesn't always have to be as in-depth as the one I just described. Actually, that's where lateral reading comes in. Lateral reading is the process of looking outside the original source for information about that source. Historically, a lot of librarians and teachers, myself included, have taught students to use the CRAAP test to verify information. CRAP is an acronym that stands for Currency, Relevance, Authority, 
accuracy, and purpose. The main problem with this test is that you never leave the source itself to answer questions about it. You check to see how current it is by looking at the date, how relevant it is by looking at the information presented, how authoritative it is by looking at the author and whatever information is provided about them, etc., etc. But consider this. If I'm giving you false information, am I going to be the one to tell you I'm giving you false information? Probably not. The CRAB test represents what is called vertical reading. That is, I drill down into the source to find out whether I can trust it, rather than looking at other sources to see what they have to say about it. The term lateral means across. In other words, I look across different sites to make sure a source is reliable and useful. I Google an author's name to see if they're an expert in the field I need them to be an expert in. I use Wikipedia to check if an organization is legit or not. Lateral reading is the opposite of vertical reading, and frankly, it's a much more effective research strategy. So that's what I encourage you to do whenever a fact or expert is in question. Wikipedia is an excellent source for lateral reading. There are two main ways you can use it for this purpose. The first is that you simply type some search terms into it to see what information comes up. Wikipedia's main asset is that facts presented there are supposed to be connected to specific references, usually as a clickable link that takes you to the bottom of the page, where you can read more about each source. Of course, it's not 100% reliable. Very few sources are. So you need to watch out for biased and opinionated writing and unsubstantiated claims. You can catch these pretty easily, for example, when a fact is not backed up with a reference. Wikipedia administrators also often provide warning flags at the top of pages that don't contain adequate references. The second way you can use Wikipedia is to verify the source of a site. Here's a little known shortcut. In the URL bar at the top of the page, shorten the website to just its original URL, not a specific page on the site, and type Wikipedia after it. If a Wikipedia site exists about that page or organization, it will pop up in the search results and you can see what it's all about. Sometimes, even if a Wikipedia page does not exist about that site, you'll get useful information. Try this experiment. I'll wait while you do. Type martinlutherking.org Wikipedia into the URL bar. What pops up? Well, if the algorithms are with us and we get the same result, here's what I see. The top result is a Wikipedia page about MLK, but the second site is a headline from the Daily Beast, an American news site that reads, MartinLutherKing.org is owned by neo-Nazis. Hmm, interesting. The third site down is a Wikipedia page for Stormfront, a neo-Nazi forum online. Even more interesting. I'm seeing a pattern here. I bet if I click on that Stormfront article, I'll find out something about them being the owners of the MartinLutherKing.org website. There's another element of fact-checking that's really important. Checking your emotions. As we've learned so far in this class, Authors and producers of online information are very often looking to engage you emotionally because emotions are powerful connectors. It's true that if I see something online to which I feel emotionally connected, I'm more likely to agree with it and I'm less likely to fact check it because who wants to demonstrate they're wrong about something? I'm sure you can see why this would be a problem in research, right? It goes back to the researcher self-evaluation you did in class. I wanted you to think about the emotional connection you have to your research topic so you could identify potential blind spots. Take my own research, for example. I'm interested in showing the many ways universal design for learning is effective in the college classroom. There's my bias. My natural inclination is to look for the information with which I emotionally connect. All the stories of students succeeding because they've had access to UDL-inspired content. 
It's much harder for me to connect with research that makes me grumpy, like when I learned that UDL doesn't have much scientific basis. In other words, while the UDL guidelines talk about the different parts of students' brains teachers can tap into by designing lessons a certain way, there has actually been no scientific research to show that these parts of the brain are effectively accessed through UDL. It doesn't mean UDL isn't effective. It just means that the way it's presented by the organization that promotes it may not be totally honest. That was a hard thing for me to learn, and it made me angry when I heard people say, there's no neuroscientific evidence that this works. But as a researcher, I also couldn't ignore it because it was true. There really is no hard research in this area. I promise that will happen to you as a researcher, but you have to be willing to see past your immediate emotional response to some information and dig into it to see if there's any truth or relevance to it. It's really the only way to be a good researcher. Okay, we've spent a lot of time on the research aspect of this lecture, so let's briefly talk about the writing side. This week's lessons are focused on building an effective argument. If you've ever taken rhetoric and comp or argument and persuasion at Stockton, this is not a new concept to you. In fact, most of us at least hear the term argumentative paper at some point in high school, even if we don't actually have to write one. Although we don't often identify it this way, researchers essentially must develop an argument to support their thesis. The key point here is that a strong and effective argument is based on evidence, not simply opinion. This is especially true for the literature review, which is a significant part of the work you'll do this semester because it will show me how well you've researched your topic, how well you understand the various arguments to be made, and how sufficiently you can support your own thesis. An argument is always based on a claim, which in this class you've expressed in your thesis. And a claim must be based on solid evidence, or else it's just an unsubstantiated opinion. The strength of your evidence is largely based on where you find it and how you present it. Like our discussion of fact-checking, you don't want to present evidence outside its proper context. When you do, you fall into what are called logical fallacies, or errors in logic. There are a lot of logical fallacies, so I'm not going to talk about all of them with you, but I'll give you an example. Let's say your claim is that all middle school students should be allowed to access social media. As evidence, you discuss scholarly sources that highlight the benefits of social media access for children ages 12 to 14, including that they develop stronger relationships with their peers, learn about appropriate social interactions before they reach high school, and learn to defend themselves against potential predators online. You also find research that says access to social media before the age of 18 interferes with children's brain development, exposes them to online bullying and harassment that negatively impacts their mental health, and prevents them from getting sufficient sleep. None of that seems relevant to you, but you don't want to be accused of ignoring it, so you mention it in passing. You've just committed perhaps the most common logical fallacy of all the straw man. The straw man fallacy occurs when a writer downplays the strength of an opposing argument, so theirs looks even stronger. One significant challenge of writing effective argumentative or persuasive papers is being fair to other sides of the argument and being open to being wrong. But it's a challenge I will regularly encourage you to face, because that's what good researchers do. Evidence can also be a tricky thing, because the kind of evidence that works best for your topic isn't necessarily the same kind that would work for someone else's topic. For example, when you're researching a historical topic, primary sources like first-person accounts and news articles are usually a good source of evidence because they reveal how people experienced the period you're researching. If you're researching a social science topic like psychology or education, however, you'll probably want to rely on scholarly research articles as much as you can. 
The main point I want to make here is that every claim you make in your argument should be backed up with external evidence of some kind. That's the heart of research, showing that your opinion is not just your opinion, that there's other people who agree and disagree with you, that your opinion is both educated and important enough that others have discussed it. This has already been a longer than normal lecture, but I do have one more thing to point out. I've said this in class and I'll probably continue to say it. Don't use the word prove when you don't actually mean prove. As the final article in this week's materials points out, prove means something very specific. It means to demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt that something is true. But like evidence, proof is tricky. It takes an incredible amount of time and effort to prove something is true. And even then, we could eventually be proven wrong. Think of how many generations it took scientists to prove that the Earth orbits the Sun. And before that, scientists had proven that the Sun orbited the Earth. Science is funny that way. We think we've demonstrated something is 100% true, only to learn with the development of new technology and resources that it wasn't true at all. So, for all those reasons, avoid using the word prove unless it is completely accepted that something is true. Like, it would be okay to say scientists have proven gravity is real, at least until we learn gravity isn't actually the thing holding our feet to the Earth. It would not be okay to say you can prove that dogs are better than cats, or that the Mandela effect is real, because for various reasons, you cannot prove those things to be true. I hope you've gotten something useful from this very lengthy lecture. Please do review what's in the Week 6 folder, and I'll see you next week. Chapter 4, Fact-Checking, From Introduction to College Research. Learning Objectives. By the end of this chapter, you will be able to 1. Identify effective strategies for fact-checking sources. 2. Investigate a source of information to determine reliability. 3. Find better coverage for a source of information. And 4. Trace claims, quotes, and media to their original context. Why fact-checking? Introduction. When you find a source of information, how do you know if it's true? How can you be sure that it's a reliable, trustworthy, and effective piece of evidence for your research? This chapter will introduce you to a set of strategies to quickly and effectively verify your sources, based on the approach taken by professional fact-checkers. Fact-checking is a form of information hygiene. It can minimize your own susceptibility to misinformation and disinformation, and help you avoid spreading it to others. As an introduction, please listen to the following video which discusses the results of a very interesting study of Stanford students, historians, and professional fact-checkers from Weinberg and McGrew. Which group do you think did the best job of identifying reliable sources? My name is Mike Caulfield. I am fascinated with how to sort truth from fiction on the web. And I'm here to give you a simple set of tools that will help you to do the same. The particular moment that we're in right now is a moment of transition where we're all going to the web for information, but almost none of us have had true training in how to use it. Some people wonder, what does it matter whether something on the internet is true or not? And for a lot of things, it doesn't. But for a lot of decisions you make, there are consequences. And the most obvious of those is you'll eventually vote for somebody. And you'll vote based on the information that you have. If that information is false, you may end up voting for someone that doesn't actually represent your interest. My core interest is how can we give you the skills to make sure that information you're getting is the best possible information that you can get. So I want to show you two websites. This, this here is the first website. If you can see this, this is 
the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics is an organization founded in the 1930s, a budget of something like 80 million, 60,000 members, considered by pediatricians, scientists, and governments as one of the premier authorities on the health and well-being of children, okay? On the other hand, this is the American College of Pediatricians. Now, the American College of Pediatricians was founded to protest the adoption of children by same-sex couples, okay? It's not a professional organization. It's considered by many to be a single-issue hate group. So these two sites are from completely different universes, and it should be pretty easy to tell them apart, right? Some Stanford researchers recently looked at just that issue. They took three sets of people, Stanford students, professional historians, and professional fact-checkers, sat them down in front of a computer, and gave them five minutes to figure out which would be the more credible source. So how did they do? Well, the answer is not very well. First, let's talk about the historians. Half of the historians couldn't say for sure which site was the more credible site. The Stanford students, how did they do? 65% actually chose the website considered by many to be a hate site as the more credible source. Finally, we had the professional fact-checkers. The professional fact-checkers, 100% of them got it right. And not only did they get it right, but they got it right quickly. A lot of people in the other groups used their full five minutes. These fact-checkers got it right in seconds. So what accounts for that difference? The fact-checkers, they used a set of skills that are web-native, a set of skills that help them very quickly get to the truth of the matter. I want to show you how they use those skills, and that's what we're going to start to do in the next video. The SIFT method. Mike Caulfield, Washington State University digital literacy expert, has helpfully condensed key fact-checking strategies into a short list of four moves, or things to do to quickly make a decision about whether or not a source is worthy of your attention. It's referred to as the SIFT method. S stands for stop, I stands for investigate the source, F stands for find better coverage, and T stands for trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. Stop. When you initially encounter a source of information and start to read it, stop. Ask yourself whether you know and trust the author, publisher, publication, or website. If you don't, use the other fact-checking moves that follow to get a better sense of what you're looking at. In other words, don't read, share, or use the source in your research until you know what it is and you can verify it's reliable. This is a particularly important step considering what we know about the attention economy. Social media, news organizations, and other digital platforms purposely promote sensational, divisive, and outrage-inducing content that emotionally hijacks our attention in order to keep us engaged with their sites, clicking, liking, commenting, sharing. Stop and check your emotions before engaging. Investigate the source. You don't have to do a three-hour investigation into a source before you engage with it. But if you're reading a piece on economics and the author is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, that would be useful information. Likewise, if you're watching a video on the many benefits of milk consumption, you would want to be aware if the video was produced by the dairy industry. This doesn't mean the Nobel economist will always be right and that the dairy industry can't ever be trusted. But knowing the expertise and agenda of the person who created the source is crucial to your interpretation of the information provided. When investigating a source, fact checkers read laterally across many websites, rather than digging deep reading vertically into the one source they're evaluating. 
That is, they don't spend much time on the source itself, but instead they quickly get off the page and see what others have said about the source. They open up many tabs in their browser, piecing together different bits of information from across the web to get a better picture of the source they're investigating. Please listen to the following short video for a demonstration of this strategy. Pay particular attention to how Wikipedia can be used to quickly get useful information about publications, organizations, and authors. In the last video, we talked about how fact checkers outperform some of the smartest people in the world. In this video, I want to show you one of the techniques they use to do that. Let's go back to the original example, okay? We were looking at these two sites. One of them was a long-respected professional organization. One of them was considered by many to be basically a hate site, right? So how did the fact checkers quickly discern that it was a hate site? Now, this may sound absurdly simple. They came to this page, the American College of Pediatricians, but they didn't read it. They got off it. They went to another page. They went and did a Google search. They started asking themselves, who are these people publishing this information? Once you put in a search like that, a Wikipedia page comes up that talks about it as a socially conservative advocacy group. Its membership, it says, is estimated at 500. You'll see that they have an annual budget somewhere of around 80,000. This is not a comparable organization to the American Academy of Pediatricians. The point here is, in order to find out the truth about an organization you're looking at, do not look at what the organization says about itself. Look at what the web is telling you about the organization. That's where you're going to find the truth of the matter. I'll show you one trick that you can do that makes this technique super fast. Most fact checkers use Wikipedia as a starting point. It's usually a great first stop for investigating journalistic sources and organizations. Take this example, a article from a publication called The Telegraph. So a lot of times I'll come to a site like this and I'll wonder, is this really a news site? So here's what I can do. I can go up to the location bar and I can chop off everything after that initial domain name. Then I type Wikipedia after it, don't forget the space. And then I hit return. Now if you do that, it will float the Wikipedia page to the top of your search results. And if you click into that Wikipedia article, you can see the Telegraph turns out to be a well-respected publication. You can do this with organizations, publications, experts. Wikipedia won't always return a high-quality article, but it usually returns a good starting point. If you get to a Wikipedia article and you're not sure you can trust it, just scroll to the bottom. Every fact in Wikipedia should be sourced to another publication. By clicking through to those articles, you can verify the individual facts in the Wikipedia article. Find better coverage. What if the source you find is low quality, or you can't determine if it's reliable or not? Perhaps you don't really care about the source. You care about the claim that source is making. You want to know if it's true or false. You want to know if it represents a consensus viewpoint, or if it's the subject of much disagreement. A common example of this is a meme you might encounter on social media. The random person or group who posted the meme may be less important than the quote or claim the meme makes. Your best strategy in this case might actually be to find a better source altogether, to look for other coverage that includes trusted reporting or analysis on that same claim. Rather than relying on the source that you initially found, you can trade up for a higher quality source. The point is that you're not wedded to using that initial source. We have the internet. You can go out and find a better source and invest your time there. Please listen to this video that demonstrates the strategy and notes how fact checkers build a library of trusted sources they can rely on to provide better coverage.
So we've gone over two habits of competent web readers. First, they investigate the source, especially when the website or organization they land on is unfamiliar to them. Second, they don't simply read the re-reporting of the re-reporting of the original reporting. They get back to the original article that did the work, that talked to the experts, that talked to the witnesses. But for lots of stories, claims, or events, you don't even have to do that. Because if you're a fact checker, and if you build a fact checking habit, over time, you'll build up a library of trusted sources that you use. And if they have done the verification work for you, you can lean on them. Let me give you an example. A site called FactsCan uh, recently called the claim that the Canada Child Benefit had lifted hundreds of thousands of children out of poverty. They called it misleading. Their reasoning, uh, the benefit was predicted to have that effect, but we don't know yet whether it did. Now, is that really misleading? Maybe, maybe not. But fact-checking gives you a lot more than a ruling. If you skim down this article, you can see the immense amount of work they pulled together. They emailed the Ministry of Family. They talked to economists. Maybe you have a slightly different conclusion, but even if you disagree, this is a great starting point for that question. You might want to make sure that you choose fact-checking sites that are quality. My particular go-to source is Snopes, which has been in business the longest. But the reason why you trust these sources is not that they agree with you, but that they do this important work of verification. Now, it may seem weird to say that you should be relying on traditional news outfits in a course that's largely about the web. But looking for true news sources is important, mostly because professional reporters are taught fact-checking as part of their work, and they're expected to do it on the stories that they write. Good fact-checkers build this list in their head of reliable sources. Rather than relying on the source that initially comes to them, they go out and they fetch a higher quality source. I call this trading up. We can show you a really simple way to do this on, online. Say you find a story that is snowed in the Sahara, but it's from an untrustworthy source. Here we see global warming hits the Sahara, and there's a picture, supposedly, of the Sahara covered in snow. Now, you could trace this story to the source, but you could also just look for coverage from another trusted source. If you search Snow Sahara in Google and then hit the News tab, you'll see a well-researched story from NPR, one from CNN, one from Forbes all confirming that this happened. If you have a, a favorite fact-checking site or publication, you can float that up to the top of your search results just by typing the name after it. So in this case here, we put the word Snopes after Snow in the Sahara, and we see that it floats that Snopes site to the top. Going to the Snopes story, what you'll find out is that snow did fall in the Sahara, but the snow actually falls in the Sahara more than you would think. The point is, you're not wedded to using the story that came to you. you it's, the, it's the internet. You can go out and you can find a better story and invest your time in that. And that's it. There are many other tricks to fact-checking, but if you just do these things, if you investigate sources before you read, if you go to the original source of the reporting, if you look for trusted work, you're going to do so much better on the web, and doing it before you invest time in reading an article or watching a video will make sure that you're investing your time on decent stories, and it'll also prevent you from being fooled. So those are the tricks, those are the skills. Um, that's it. <laughs>
Trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. Much of what we find on the internet has been stripped of context. Maybe there's a video of a fight between two people with person A as the aggressor. But what happened before that? What was clipped out of the video and what stayed in? Maybe there's a picture that seems real, but the caption could be misleading. Maybe a claim is made about a new medical treatment based on a research finding, but you're not certain if the cited research paper actually said that. The people who re-report these stories either get things wrong by mistake, or, in some cases, they're intentionally misleading us. In these cases, you'll want to trace the claim, quote, or media back to the source, so you can see it in its original context and get a sense of whether the version you saw was accurately presented. Please listen to the following video that discusses re-reporting versus original reporting and demonstrates a quick tip, going upstream to find the original reporting source. So now you know how to investigate sources. But investigate what? It's not always immediately clear. Take this example, a article from a publication called Vulture. It says that some Canadian schools have banned discussion of 13 reasons why. But before we get outraged about this, before we start to have a discussion, let's figure out whether it's true. So we go to do our original trick, our Just Add Wikipedia trick. We pull up the site name, we're gonna throw that into Wikipedia, but we stop. And we stop because we realize Vulture isn't really the source of this reporting. Down here at the end of this first paragraph, we see that it's according to CBC News. The information in this article probably isn't verified by reporters at Vulture. They're just reporting on other reporting that the CBC has already done. So we have to get closer to the original source by clicking the link. And here we find the original story. Now that we're at the source, we still check what the source is. And what you'll see if you plug this into Wikipedia is it's one of Canada's most popular news sites. It's long established, it's well resourced, it's got a good reputation. The point is we go upstream to the source till we get to the point where the people doing the writing are the people verifying the facts. We call this the original reporting source. In this case, that original reporting source is trustworthy. So now we can invest our time in the article and start thinking about the issue. Using Wikipedia effectively. Quote, to tell students not to use Wikipedia is to deprive them of one of the most useful tools on the internet. Instead of teaching them to avoid it, we should be teaching students how to use Wikipedia wisely. End quote. From the How to Use Wikipedia Wisely video. Misconceptions and Benefits Wikipedia, the world's largest reference website, is broadly misunderstood. Because it's written by thousands of anonymous volunteers around the world, Wikipedia generates uncertainty or skepticism in many. If just anyone can change Wikipedia, won't there be inaccuracies? Won't people potentially abuse that power? The open, collaborative approach of Wikipedia means that it's susceptible to vandalism, unverified information, or subtle viewpoint promotion. On Wikipedia, vandalism refers to editing an article in a malicious manner that is intentionally disruptive, whether the edits are humorous, nonsensical, a hoax, or degrading. However, that same open approach also increases the chances that factual errors and misleading statements will be quickly corrected, and that articles will be consistently improved and updated. Indeed, an often cited 2005 study, as well as a follow-up study in 2012, found no significant differences in accuracy between Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica articles. Additionally, the Wikipedia community has strict rules about providing citations or references for facts and claims, and authors must adopt a neutral point of view. 
Because of this, Wikipedia articles are often the best available introduction to a subject. If you're researching a complex question, starting with the resources and summaries provided by Wikipedia can give you a substantial running start on an issue. For more information about this, see the section on background reading. The requirement for Wikipedia authors to cite their sources has another beneficial effect. If you can find a claim expressed in a Wikipedia article, you can almost always follow the footnotes to reliable sources for further research and evidence. Areas for caution. Not all Wikipedia articles are useful. Some articles are incomplete or contain citation-needed warnings. You may find very short stub articles that are awaiting either further expansion or deletion. You should avoid using these types of articles for your research. Another known concern is systemic bias in Wikipedia, including gender and racial bias. For example, of the over 130,000 active editors of Wikipedia, only 8.5 to 16% are female. Of the over 1.5 million biographies on Wikipedia, only 18% are about women. Wikipedia has launched numerous initiatives to encourage more women to become editors and to improve their coverage of women. Even so, the gender gap persists. With Wikipedia, as well as other more traditional forms of publishing, we must be aware of who creates the information we consume and understand how that impacts our knowledge about research topics and the world around us. For more on bias, see the page on information sources bias. Using Wikipedia wisely. With an awareness of these benefits and concerns, you can more effectively use Wikipedia for fact-checking and to find background information on a topic. Please listen to the following video that addresses some of the common misconceptions about Wikipedia and demonstrates how you can use this tool wisely, as professional fact-checkers often do. Many educators tell students they shouldn't use Wikipedia because it's full of mistakes and anybody can edit a page. If that's the case, then why, in our observations of professional fact-checkers, was Wikipedia one of the first sites they often consulted? It's true that there are mistakes in Wikipedia. A 2005 study from Nature found that the typical Wikipedia science article had four mistakes. But the same study found that the typical Encyclopedia Britannica entry contained three mistakes. In contrast to a print encyclopedia, Wikipedia allows for changes to be made almost immediately and for information to be kept current. And it's not true that anyone can edit any Wikipedia page. Many of the most viewed entries are locked, which means that only high-level Wikipedians can change them. To tell students not to use Wikipedia is to deprive them of one of the most useful tools on the internet. Instead of teaching them to avoid it, we should be teaching students how to use Wikipedia wisely. When fact checkers go to Wikipedia, they scan the body of an article, but what they are really looking for is the gold mine of sources at the end of the article. For example, the American College of Pediatricians has an official-sounding name and logo. It's easy to think that it's the main organization of pediatricians in the country. But even a quick scan of Wikipedia shows that not to be the case. But the real evidence comes at the bottom, in the references Wikipedia requires in substantiating a claim. In a matter of seconds, students can find in these references a letter from Francis S. Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, 
condemning this small group for misrepresenting his research findings. This brings the trustworthiness of the American College of Pediatricians into question. And fact checkers don't just examine one source, they look at multiple sources. Used properly, Wikipedia is an invaluable resource, especially as a launching pad for evaluating online information. We need to teach students how to use it wisely. Conclusion. There's a theme that runs through all of these fact-checking moves. They're about reconstructing the necessary context to verify, understand, and interpret sources of information that we may encounter in academic, professional, and personal research. One piece of context is the author or publisher. What's their expertise? What's their agenda? This will require investigating the source. When it comes to claims, a key piece of context includes whether they're accepted or contested. By scanning for other coverage, you can see what the consensus is on a claim and perhaps find a better source. Finally, when evidence is presented through a certain lens, whether a quote or an image or a scientific finding, sometimes it helps to reconstruct the original context in which the evidence was presented. In some cases, these techniques will show you that claims are false or that sources are misleading or even deceptive. But in the majority of cases, they do something just as important. They reestablish the context that the web so often strips away allowing for more meaningful engagement with information. Chapter 3, Building a Fact-Checking Habit by Checking Your Emotions, from Web Literacy for Student Fact-Checkers. In addition to the moves, I'll introduce one more word of advice. Check your emotions. This isn't quite a strategy, like go upstream, or a tactic, like using date filters to find the origin of a fact. For lack of a better word, I'm calling this advice a habit. The habit is simple. When you feel strong emotion, happiness, anger, pride, vindication, and that emotion pushes you to share a quote-unquote fact with others, stop. Above all, these are the claims that you must fact check. Why? Because you're already likely to check things you know are important to get right, and you're predisposed to analyze things that put you in an intellectual frame of mind. But things that make you angry or overjoyed? Well, our record as humans are not good with these things. As an example, I'll cite this tweet that crossed my Twitter feed. Figure one shows a tweet from Twitter user at Ron Hogan that reads, quote, the Nazis murdered Senator Schumer's grandmother and most of her children. Trump's father was arrested at a Ku Klux Klan rally, end quote. It's in response to a Donald Trump tweet. It has been retweeted over 55,000 times. You don't need to know much of the background of this tweet to see its emotionally charged nature. President Trump had insulted Chuck Schumer, a Democratic senator from New York, and characterized the tears that Schumer shed during a statement about refugees as, quote-unquote, fake tears. This tweet reminds us that Senator Schumer's great-grandmother died at the hands of the Nazis, which could explain Schumer's emotional connection to the issue of refugees. Or does it? Do we actually know that Schumer's great-grandmother died at the hands of the Nazis? And if we're not sure this is true, should we really be retweeting it? Our normal inclination is to ignore verification needs when we react strongly to content, and researchers have found that content that causes strong emotions, both positive and negative, spreads the fastest through our social networks. Savvy activists and advocates take advantage of this flaw of ours, getting past our filters by posting material that goes straight to our hearts. Use your emotions as a reminder. Strong emotions should become a trigger for your new fact-checking habit. 
Every time content you want to share makes you feel rage, laughter, ridicule, or even a heartwarming buzz, spend 30 seconds fact-checking. It will do you well. Part 4. Read Laterally from Web Literacy for Student Fact-Checkers. What reading laterally means. Time for a third move. Good fact-checkers read laterally across many connected sites instead of digging deep into the site at hand. When you start to read a book, a journal article, or a physical newspaper in the real world, you already know quite a bit about your source. You've subscribed to the newspaper or picked it up from a newsstand because you've heard of it. You've ordered the book from Amazon or purchased it from a local bookstore because it was a book you were interested in reading. You've chosen a journal article either because of the quality of the journal article or because someone whose expertise and background you know cited it. In other words, when you get to the document you need to evaluate, the process of getting there has already given you some initial bearings. Compared to these intellectual journeys, web reading is a bit more like teleportation. Even after following a source upstream, you arrive at a page, site, and author that are often all unknown to you. How do you analyze the author's qualifications or the trustworthiness of the site? Researchers have found that most people go about this the wrong way. When confronted with a new site, they poke around the site and try to find out what it says about itself by going to the About page, clicking around in on-site author biographies, or scrolling up and down the page. This is a faulty strategy for two reasons. First, if the site is untrustworthy, then what the site says about itself is most likely untrustworthy as well. And even if the site is generally trustworthy, it's inclined to paint the most favorable picture of its expertise and credibility possible. The solution to this is, in the words of Sam Weinberg's Stanford research team, to read laterally. Lateral readers don't spend time on the page or site until they've first gotten their bearings by looking at what other sites and resources say about the source at which they are looking. For example, when presented with a new site that needs to be evaluated, professional fact-checkers don't spend much time on the site itself. Instead, they get off the page and see what other authoritative sources have said about the site. They open up many tabs in their browser, piecing together different bits of information from across the web to get a better picture of the site they're investigating. Many of the questions they ask are the same as the vertical readers scrolling up and down the pages of the source they're evaluating. But unlike those readers, they realize that the truth is more likely to be found in the network of links to and commentaries about the site than in the site itself. Only when they've gotten their bearings from the rest of the network do they re-engage with the content. Lateral readers gain a better understanding as to whether to trust the facts and analysis presented to them. You can tell lateral readers at work. They have multiple tabs open and they perform web searches on the author of the piece and the ownership of the site. They also look at pages linking to the site, not just pages coming from it. Lateral reading helps the reader understand both the perspective from which the site's analyses come and if the site has an editorial process or expert reputation that would allow one to accept the truth of a site's facts. We're going to deal with the latter issue of factual reliability, while noting that lateral reading is just as important for the first issue. Evaluating a website or publication's authority. Authority and reliability are tricky to evaluate. Whether we admit it or not, most of us would like to ascribe authority to sites and authors who support our conclusions and deny authority to publications that disagree with our worldview. To us, this seems natural. The trustworthy publications are the ones saying things that are correct, and we define correct as what we believe to be true. A moment's reflection will show the flaw in this way of thinking. How do we get beyond our own myopia here? 
For the digital polarization project for which this text was created, we ended up adopting Wikipedia's guidelines for determining the reliability of publications. These guidelines were developed to help people with diametrically opposed positions argue in rational ways about the reliability of sources using common criteria. For Wikipedians, reliable sources are defined by process, aim, and expertise. I think these criteria are worth thinking about as you fact check. Process. Above all, a reliable source for facts should have a process in place for encouraging accuracy, verifying facts, and correcting mistakes. Note that reputation and process might be apart from issues of bias. The New York Times is thought by many to have a center-left bias, the Wall Street Journal a center-right bias, and USA Today a centrist bias. Yet fact-checkers of all political stripes are happy to be able to track a fact down to one of these publications since they have reputations for a high degree of accuracy and issue corrections when they get facts wrong. The same thing applies to peer-reviewed publications. While there's much debate about the inherent flaws of peer review, peer review does get many eyes on data and results. Their process helps to keep many obviously flawed results out of publication. If a peer-reviewed journal has a large following of experts, that provides even more eyes on the article and more chances to spot flaws. Since one's reputation for research is on the line in front of one's peers, it also provides incentives to be precise in claims and careful in analysis in a way that other forms of communication might not. Expertise. According to Wikipedians, researchers in certain classes of professionals have expertise, and their usefulness is defined by that expertise. For example, we would expect a marine biologist to have a more informed opinion about the impact of global warming on marine life than the average person, particularly if they've done research in that area. Professional knowledge matters too. We'd expect a health inspector to have a reasonably good knowledge of health code violations, even if they're not a scholar of the area. And while we often think researchers are more knowledgeable than professionals, this is not always the case. For a range of issues, professionals in a given area might have better insight than researchers, especially where questions deal with common practice. Reporters, on the other hand, often have no domain expertise, but may write for papers that accurately summarize and convey the views of experts, professionals, and event participants. As reporters write in a niche area over many years, for example, opioid drug policy, they may acquire expertise themselves. AIM. AIM is defined by what the publication, author, or media source is attempting to accomplish. AIMs are complex. Respected scientific journals, for example, aim for prestige within the scientific community, but must also have a business model. A site like the New York Times relies on ad revenue, but is also dependent on maintaining a reputation for accuracy. One way to think about AIM is to ask what incentives an article or author has to get things right. An opinion column that gets a fact or two wrong won't cause its author much trouble, whereas an article in a newspaper that gets facts wrong may damage the reputation of the reporter. On the far ends of the spectrum, a single bad or retracted article by a scientist can ruin a career, whereas an advocacy blog site can twist facts daily with no consequences. Policy think tanks, such as the Cato Institute and the Center for American Progress, are interesting hybrid cases. To maintain their funding, they must continue to promote aims that have a particular bias. At the same time, their prestige, at least for the better known ones, depends on them promoting these aims while maintaining some level of honesty. In general, you want to choose a publication that has strong incentives to get things right, as shown by both authorial intent and business model, reputational incentives, and history. Stupid journal tricks. There's no more dreaded phrase to the fact checker than a recent study says. 
Recent studies say that chocolate cures cancer, prevents cancer, and may have no impact on cancer whatsoever. Recent studies say that holding a pencil in your teeth makes you happier. Recent studies say that the scientific process is failing, and others say it's just fine. Most studies are data points. Emerging evidence that lends weight to one conclusion or another, but does not resolve questions definitively. What we want as a fact checker is not data points, but the broad consensus of experts. And the broad consensus of experts is rare. The following chapters are not meant to show you how to meticulously evaluate research claims. Instead, they're meant to give you, the reader, some quick and frugal ways to decide what sorts of research can be safely passed over when you're looking for a reliable source. We take as our premise that information is abundant and time is scarce. As such, it's better to err on the side of moving on to the next article than to invest time in an article that displays warning signs regarding either expertise or accuracy. Finding a journal's impact factor. I mentioned earlier that this process is one of elimination. In a world where information is plentiful, we can be a bit demanding about what counts as evidence. When it comes to research, one gating expectation can be that published academic research cited for a claim comes from respected peer-reviewed journals. Consider this journal. Figure 58 on this page shows the homepage for PLOS Medicine. Is it a journal that gives any authority to this article, which is called Socioeconomic Inequalities in Body Mass Index Across Adulthood? Or is it just another web-based paper mill? Our first check is to see what the impact factor of the journal is. This is a measure of the journal's influence in the academic community. While a flawed metric for assessing the relative importance of journals, it is a useful tool for quickly identifying journals that are not part of a known circle of academic discourse, or that are not peer-reviewed. We search Google for PLOS Medicine, and it pulls up a knowledge panel for us with an impact factor. Figure 59 on this page shows us the impact factor is 13.585, as of 2015. Impact factor can go into the 30s, but we're using this as a quick elimination test, not a ranking, so we're happy with anything over one. We still have work to do on this article, but it's worth keeping in the mix. What about this one? Figure 60 shows an article called Association of Severe Obesity with the Metabolic Profile of Adolescents and Adults, and it comes from the Journal of Obesity and Weight Loss Medication. In this case, we get a result with a link to this journal at the top, but no panel, as there is no registered impact factor for this journal. Figure 61 shows our Google search for the Journal of Obesity and Weight Loss Medication Impact Factor. Again, we stress that the article here may be excellent. We don't know. Likewise, there are occasionally articles published in the most prestigious journals that are pure junk. Be careful in your use of impact factor. A journal with an impact factor of 10 is not necessarily better than a journal with an impact factor of 3, especially if you're dealing with a niche subject. But in a quick and dirty analysis, we have to say that the PLOS Medicine article is more trustworthy than the Journal of Obesity and Weight Loss Medication article. In fact, if you were deciding whether to reshare a story in your feed and the evidence for the story came from this obesity journal, I'd skip reposting it entirely. Using Google Scholar to check author expertise. Not all, or even most, expertise is academic. But when the expertise cited is academic, scholarly publications by the researcher can go a long way to establishing their position in the academic community. Let's look at David Bond, who wrote the PLOS Medicine article we looked at a chapter ago. To do that, we go to Google Scholar, not the general page, and type in his name. Figure 62 here shows us doing a Google Scholar search for David Bond. 
we see a couple things here. First, he has a history of publishing in this area of lifespan obesity patterns. At the bottom of each result, we see how many times each article he is associated with is cited. These aren't amazing numbers, but for a niche area, they're a healthy citation rate. Many articles published aren't cited at all, and here at least one work of his has over 100 citations. Additionally, if we scan down that right side column, we see some names we might recognize, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, and another PLOS article. Keep in mind that we're looking for expertise in the area of the claim. These are great credentials for talking about obesity. They are not great credentials for talking about opiate addiction. But right now we care about obesity, so that's okay. By a point of comparison, we can look at a publication in Europhysics News that attacks the standard view of the 9-11 World Trade Center collapse. We see this represented in this story on popular alternative news and conspiracy site, Anon HQ. Figure 63 here shows a headline that says, it's official, European Scientific Journal concludes 9-11 was a controlled demolition. The journal cited is Europhysics News, and when we look it up in Google, we find no impact factor at all. In fact, a short investigation of the journal reveals it is not a peer-reviewed journal, but a magazine associated with the European Physics Society. The author here is either lying or does not understand the difference between a scientific journal and a scientific organization's magazine. So much for the source. But what about the authors? Do they have a variety of papers on the mathematical modeling of building demolitions? If you punch the names into Google Scholar, you'll find that at least one of the authors does have some modeling experience on architectural stresses, although most of his published work was from years ago. Figure 64 on this page shows a Google Scholar search for Robert Quarrel, one of the authors of this article. What do we make of this? It's fair to say that the article here was not peer-reviewed and shouldn't be treated as a substantial contribution to the body of research on the 9-11 collapse. The headline of the blog article that brought us here is wrong as is their claim that a European scientific journal concluded 9-11 was a controlled demolition. That's flat out false. But it's worthwhile to note that at least one of the people writing this paper does have some expertise in a related field. We're left with that question of what does generally mean in the phrase, experts generally agree on X. What should we do with this article? Well, it's an article published in a non-peer-reviewed journal by an expert who published a number of other respected articles, though quite a long time ago in one case. To an expert, that definitely could be interesting. To a novice looking for the majority and significant minority views of the field, it's probably not the best source. How to think about research. This brings us to my third point, which is how to think about research articles. People tend to think that newer is better with everything. Sometimes this is true. New phones are better than old phones, and new textbooks are often more up-to-date than old textbooks. But the understanding many students have about scholarly articles is that the newer studies replace the older studies. You see this assumption in the headline, it's official, European Scientific Journal concludes. In general, that's not how science works. In science, multiple conflicting studies come in over long periods of time, each one a drop in the bucket of the claim it supports. Over time, the weight of the evidence ends up on one side or another. Depending on the quality of the new research, some drops are bigger than others, some much bigger, but overall, it is an incremental process. As such, studies that are consistent with previous research are often more trustworthy than those that have surprising or unexpected results. This runs counter to the narrative promoted by the press. News, after all, favors what is new and different. The unfortunate effect of the press's presentation of science, and in particular science around popular issues such as health, 
is that they would rather not give a sense of the slow accumulation of evidence for each side of an issue. Their narrative often presents a world where last month's findings are overturned by this month's findings, which are then in turn overturned back to the original finding a month from now. This whiplash presentation, chocolate is good for you, chocolate is bad for you, undermines the public's faith in science. But the whiplash is not from science. It's a product of the inappropriate presentation from the press. As a fact checker, your job is not to resolve debates based on new evidence, but to accurately summarize the state of research and the consensus of experts in a given area, taking into account majority and significant minority views. For this reason, fact-checking communities such as Wikipedia discourage authors from oversighting individual research, which tends to point in different directions. Instead, Wikipedia encourages users to find high-quality secondary sources that reliably summarize the research base of a certain area, or research reviews of multiple works. This is good advice for fact-checkers as well. Without an expert's background, it can be challenging to place new research in the context of old, which is what you want to do. Here's a claim, two claims actually, that ran recently in the Washington Post. Quote, the alcohol industry and some government agencies continue to promote the idea that moderate drinking provides some health benefits, but new research is beginning to call even that long-standing claim into question. End quote. Reading down further, we find a more specific claim. The medical consensus is that alcohol is a carcinogen even at low levels of consumption. Is this true? The first thing we do is look at the authorship of the article. It's from the Washington Post, which is a generally reliable publication, and one of its authors has made a career of data analysis, and actually won a Pulitzer Prize as part of a team that analyzed data and discovered election fraud in a Florida mayoral race. So one thing to think about is that these people may be better interpreters of the data than you. Key thing for fact checkers to keep in mind, you are often not a person in a position to know. But suppose we want to dig further and find out if they are really looking at a shift in the expert consensus or just adding more drops to the evidence bucket. How would we do that? First, we do sanity check where the pieces they mentioned were published. The Post article mentions two articles by Jenny Connor, a professor at the University of Otago Dunedin School of Medicine. One published last year and the other published early. Let's find the more recent one, which seems to be a key input into this article. We go to Google Scholar and type in Jenny Connor, 2016. As usual, we're scanning quickly to get to the article we want, but also minding our peripheral vision here. So, we see that the top one is what we probably want, but we also notice that Connor has other well-cited articles in the field of health. What about this article on alcohol consumption as a cause of cancer? It was published in 2017, which is probably the physical journal's publication date, the article having been released in 2016. Nevertheless, it's already been cited by 12 other papers. What about this publication, Addiction? Is it reputable? Let's take a look with an impact factor search. Figure 66 on this page shows our search for addiction impact factor on Google, and the impact factor is 4.145 as of 2010. Yep, it looks legit. We also see in the knowledge panel to the right that the journal was founded in the 1880s. If we click through to that Wikipedia article, it will tell us that this journal ranks second in impact factor for journals on substance abuse. Again, you should never use impact factor for fine-grained distinctions. What we're checking for here is that the Washington Post wasn't fooled into covering some research far out of the mainstream of substance abuse studies, or tricked into covering something published in a sketchy journal. It's clear from this quick check that this is a researcher well within the mainstream of her profession, publishing in prominent journals. 
Next, we want to see what kind of article this is. Sometimes journals publish short reactions to other works, or smaller opinion pieces. What we'd like to see here is that this was either new research or a substantial review of research. We find from the abstract that it's primarily a review of research, including some of the newer studies. We note that it's a six-page article, and therefore not likely to be a simple letter or response to another article. The abstract also goes into detail about the breadth of evidence reviewed. Frustratingly, we can't get our hands on the article, but this probably tells us enough about it for our purposes. Finding high-quality secondary sources. Let's continue with the alcohol is closely associated with cancer claim from the last chapter. Let's see if we can get a decent summary from a respected organization that deals with these issues. This takes a bit of domain knowledge, but for information on disease, the United States' National Institutes of Health, or NIH, is considered one of the leading authorities. What did they say about this issue? Figure 67 on this page shows a Google search for NIH alcohol and cancer. What we don't want here is a random article. We're not an expert and we don't want to have to guess at the weights to give individual research. We want a summary. And as we scan the results, we see a risk fact sheet from the National Cancer Institute. In general, domain suffixes like com, org, net, etc. don't mean anything, but .gov domains are strictly regulated, so we know this is from the U.S. federal government. A fact sheet is a summary, which is what we want, so we click through. This page doesn't mince words. Quote, based on extensive reviews of research studies, there is a strong scientific consensus of an association between alcohol drinking and several types of cancer. In its report on carcinogens, the National Toxicology Program of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services lists consumption of alcoholic beverages as a known human carcinogen. The research evidence indicates that the more alcohol a person drinks, particularly the more alcohol a person drinks regularly over time, the higher his or her risk of developing an alcohol-associated cancer. Based on data from 2009, an estimated 3.5% of all cancer deaths in the United States, about 19,500 deaths, were alcohol-related. With the .gov extension, this page is pretty likely to be linked to the NIH. But just in case, we Google search the site to see who runs it and what their reputation is. Figure 68 here shows a Google search for www.cancer.gov, not site www.cancer.gov, which eliminates it from giving us information from the site itself. Since we're reading laterally, let's click on the link five results down to see what the NIH says about the National Cancer Institute. Again, we're just sanity checking our impression that this is an authoritative body of the NIH. Here's its blurb from the fifth result down. Quote, the National Cancer Institute, NCI, is part of the National Institutes of Health, NIH which is one of 11 agencies that compose the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The NCI, established under the National Cancer Institute Act of 1937, is the federal government's principal agency for cancer research and training. End quote. As always, we glance up to the web address and make sure we are really getting this information from the NIH. We are. If we were a researcher, we would sort through more of this. We might review individual articles or make sure that some more out-of-the-mainstream views are not being ignored. Such an effort would take a deep background and understanding of the underlying issues. But we're not researchers. We're just people looking to find out if our rationalization for those two after-work drinks is maybe a bit bogus. And on that level, it's not looking particularly good for us. We have a major review of the evidence in a major journal stating there's really no safe level of drinking when it comes to cancer. And we have the NIH, one of the most trusted sources of health information in the U.S., 
and not exactly a fad chaser, telling us in an FAQ that there is a strong consensus that alcohol consumption predicts cancer. Choosing your experts first. One other thing to note here is that in the past chapter or two, we followed a different pattern than a lot of web searching. Here, we decided who would be the most trustworthy source of medical consensus, the NIH, and looked up what they said. This is an important technique to have in your research mix. Too often, we execute web search after web search without first asking who would constitute an expert. Unsurprisingly, when we do things in this order, we end up valuing the expertise of people who agree with us and devaluing the expertise of those who don't. If you find yourself going down a rabbit hole of conflicting information in your searches, back up a second and ask yourself, whose expertise would you respect? Maybe it's not the NIH. Maybe it's the Mayo Clinic or Medline or the World Health Organization. But deciding who has expertise before you search will mediate some of your worst tendencies toward confirmation bias. So given the evidence we've seen in previous chapters about alcohol and cancer, am I going to give up my after work order? I don't know. I really like Porter. The evidence is still emerging, and maybe the risk increase is worth it. But I'm also convinced the Washington Post article isn't the newest version of eating grapefruit will make you thinner. It's not even NutraSweet may make you fat, which is an interesting finding, but a point around which there is no consensus. Instead, small amounts of daily alcohol increase cancer risk represents a real emerging consensus in the research, and from our review, we find it's not even a particularly new trend. The consensus emerged some time ago. The NIH FAQ dates back to 2010. It's just been poorly communicated to the public. Argument from the Writing Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. What this handout is about. This handout will define what an argument is and explain why you need one in most of your academic essays. Arguments are everywhere. You may be surprised to hear that the word argument does not have to be written anywhere in your assignment for it to be an important part of your task. In fact, making an argument, expressing a point of view on a subject and supporting it with evidence, is often the aim of academic writing. Your instructors may assume that you know this and thus may not explain the importance of arguments in class. Most material you learn in college is or has been debated by someone, somewhere, at some time. Even when the material you read or hear is presented as a simple fact, it may actually be one person's interpretation of a set of information. Instructors may call on you to examine that interpretation and defend it, refute it, or offer some new view of your own. In writing assignments, you will almost always need to do more than just summarize information that you've gathered or regurgitate facts that have been discussed in class. You'll need to develop a point of view on or interpretation of that material and provide evidence for your position. Consider an example. For nearly 2,000 years, educated people in many Western cultures believed that bloodletting, deliberately causing a sick person to lose blood, was the most effective treatment for a variety of illnesses. The claim that bloodletting is beneficial to human health was not widely questioned until the 1800s, and some physicians continued to recommend bloodletting as late as the 1920s. Medical practices have now changed because some people began to doubt the effectiveness of bloodletting, these people argued against it and provided convincing evidence. Human knowledge grows out of such differences of opinion, and scholars like your instructors spend their lives engaged in debate over what claims may be counted as accurate in their fields. In their courses, they want you to engage in similar kinds of critical thinking and debate. Argumentation is not just what your instructors do. We all use argumentation on a daily basis, 
and you probably already have some skill at crafting an argument. The more you improve your skills in this area, the better you'll be at thinking critically, reasoning, making choices, and weighing evidence. Making a claim. What is an argument? In academic writing, an argument is usually a main idea, often called a claim or thesis statement, backed up with evidence that supports the idea. In the majority of college papers, you'll need to make some sort of claim and use evidence to support it, and your ability to do this well will separate your papers from those of students who see assignments as mere accumulations of fact and detail. In other words, gone are the happy days of being given a topic about which you can write anything. It's time to stake out a position and prove why it's a good position for a thinking person to hold. Claims can be as simple as protons are positively charged and electrons are negatively charged, with evidence such as, in this experiment, protons and electrons acted in such and such a way. Claims can also be as complex as genre is the most important element to the contract of expectations between filmmaker and audience. Using reasoning and evidence such as defying genre expectations can create a complete apocalypse of story, form, and content, leaving us stranded in a sort of genreless abyss. In either case, the rest of your paper will detail the reasoning and evidence that have led you to believe that your position is best. When beginning to write a paper, ask yourself, what is my point? For example, the point of this handout is to help you become a better writer, and we are arguing that an important step in the process of writing effective arguments is understanding the concept of argumentation. If your papers do not have a main point, they cannot be arguing for anything. Asking yourself what your point is can help you avoid a mere information dump. Consider this. Your instructors probably know a lot more than you do about your subject matter. Why then would you want to provide them with material they already know? Instructors are usually looking for two things. One, proof that you understand the material. Two, a demonstration of your ability to use or apply the material in ways that go beyond what you have read or heard. This second part can be done in many ways. You can critique the material, apply it to something else, or even just explain it in a different way. In order to succeed at the second step, though, you must have a particular point to argue. Arguments in academic writing are usually complex and take time to develop. Your argument will need to be more than a simple or obvious statement, such as, Frank Lloyd Wright was a great architect. Such a statement might capture your initial impressions of Wright as you have studied him in class. However, you need to look deeper and express specifically what caused that greatness. Your instructor will probably expect something more complicated, such as, Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture combines elements of European modernism, Asian aesthetic form, and locally found materials to create a unique new style. Or, there are many strong similarities between Wright's building designs and those of his mother, which suggests that he may have borrowed some of her ideas. To develop your argument, you would then define your terms and prove your claim with evidence from Wright's drawings and buildings and those of the other architects you mentioned. Evidence. Do not stop with having a point. You have to back up your point with evidence. The strength of your evidence and your use of it can make or break your argument. You already have the natural inclination for this type of thinking, if not in an academic setting. Think about how you talked your parents into letting you borrow the family car. Did you present them with lots of instances of your past trustworthiness? Did you make them feel guilty because your friends' parents all let them drive? Did you whine until they just wanted you to shut up? Did you look up statistics on teen driving and use them to show how you didn't fit the dangerous driver profile? These are all types of argumentation, and they exist in academia in similar forms. Every field has slightly different requirements for acceptable evidence, 
So familiarize yourself with some arguments from within that field instead of just applying whatever evidence you like best. Pay attention to your textbooks and your instructor's lectures. What types of argument and evidence are they using? The type of evidence that sways an English instructor may not work to convince a sociology instructor. Find out what counts as proof that something is true in that field. Is it statistics, a logical development of points, something from the object being discussed, artwork, texture, culture, or atom, the way something works, or some combination of more than one of these things? Be consistent with your evidence. Unlike negotiating for the use of your parents' car, a college paper is not the place for an all-out blitz of every type of argument. You can often use more than one type of evidence within a paper, but make sure that within each section you're providing the reader with evidence appropriate to each claim. So, if you start a paragraph or section with a statement like, putting the student seating area closer to the basketball court will raise player performance, do not follow with your evidence on how much more money the university could raise by letting more students go to games for free. Information about how fan support raises player morale, which then results in better play, would be a better follow-up. Your next section could offer clear reasons why undergraduates have as much or more right to attend an undergraduate event as wealthy alumni, but this information would not go in the same section as the fan support stuff. You cannot convince a confused person, so keep things tidy and ordered. Counterargument. One way to strengthen your argument and show that you have a deep understanding of the issue you're discussing is to anticipate and address counterarguments or objections. By considering what someone who disagrees with your position might have to say about your argument, you show that you've thought things through, and you dispose of some of the reasons your audience might have for not accepting your argument. Recall our discussion of student seating. To make the most effective argument possible, you should consider not only what students would say about seating, but also what alumni who've paid a lot to get good seats might say. You can generate counterarguments by asking yourself how someone who disagrees with you might respond to each of the points you've made or your position as a whole. If you can't immediately imagine another position, here are some strategies to try. Do some research. It may seem to you that no one could possibly disagree with the position you're arguing, but someone probably has. For example, some people argue that a hot dog is a sandwich. If you're making an argument concerning, for example, the characteristics of an exceptional sandwich, you might want to see what some of these people have to say. Talk with a friend or with your teacher. Another person may be able to imagine counterarguments that haven't occurred to you. Consider your conclusion or claim and the premises of your argument and imagine someone who denies each of them. For example, if you argued, cats make the best pets. This is because they are clean and independent. You might imagine someone saying, cats do not make the best pets. They are dirty and needy. Once you've thought up some counterarguments, consider how you will respond to them. Will you concede that your opponent has a point but explain why your audience should nonetheless accept your argument? Will you reject the counterargument and explain why it is mistaken? Either way, you'll want to leave your reader with a sense that your argument is stronger than opposing arguments. When you're summarizing opposing arguments, be charitable. Present each argument fairly and objectively, rather than trying to make it look foolish. You want to show that you consider the many sides of the issue. If you simply attack or caricature your opponent, also referred to as presenting a straw man, you suggest that your argument is only capable of defeating an extremely weak adversary, which may undermine your argument rather than enhance it. It's usually better to consider one or two serious counterarguments in some depth, rather than to give a long but superficial list of many different counterarguments and replies. Be sure that your reply is consistent with your original argument. If considering a counterargument changes your position, you'll need to go back and revise your original argument accordingly. 
audience. Audience is a very important consideration in argument. A lifetime of dealing with your family members has helped you figure out which arguments work best to persuade each of them. Maybe whining works with one parent, but the other will only accept cold, hard statistics. Your kid brother may listen only to the sound of money in his palm. It's usually wise to think of your audience in an academic setting as someone who's perfectly smart, but who doesn't necessarily agree with you. You're not just expressing your opinion in an argument. It's true because I said so. And in most cases, your audience will know something about the subject at hand. So you'll need sturdy proof. At the same time, do not think of your audience as capable of reading your mind. You have to come out and state both your claim and your evidence clearly. Do not assume that because the instructor knows the material, he or she understands what part of it you're using, what you think about it, and why you have taken the position you've chosen. Critical reading. Critical reading is a big part of understanding argument. Although some of the material you read will be very persuasive, do not fall under the spell of the printed word as authority. Very few of your instructors think of the texts they assign as the last word on the subject. Remember that the author of every text has an agenda, something that he or she wants you to believe. This is okay, everything is written from someone's perspective, but it's a good thing to be aware of. Take note either in the margins of your source, if you're using a photocopy or your own book, or on a separate sheet as you read. Put away that highlighter. Simply highlighting a text is good for memorizing the main ideas in that text. It does not encourage critical reading. Part of your goal as a reader should be to put the author's ideas in your own words. Then you can stop thinking of these ideas as facts and start thinking of them as arguments. When you read, ask yourself questions like, what is the author trying to prove? And what is the author assuming I will agree with? Do you agree with the author? Does the author adequately defend her argument? What kind of proof does she use? Is there something she leaves out that you would put in? Does putting it in hurt her argument? As you get used to reading critically, you'll start to see the sometimes hidden agendas of other writers, and you can use this skill to improve your own ability to craft effective arguments. A quick note about this source. It was written for journalists, but I think it contains some excellent tips for student researchers as well. It's also a reminder that if you're using news stories in your research and you see a journalist use the words prove or proven, proceed cautiously. Don't say prove. How to report on the conclusiveness of research findings by Denise Marie Ordway for the journalist's resource. This tip sheet explains why it's rarely accurate for news stories to report that a new study proves anything, even when a press release says it does. When news outlets report that new research studies prove something, they're almost certainly wrong. Studies conducted in fields outside of mathematics do not prove anything. They find evidence, sometimes extraordinarily strong evidence. It's important journalists understand that science is an ongoing process of collecting and interrogating evidence, with each new discovery building on or raising questions about earlier discoveries. A single research study usually represents one small step toward fully understanding an issue or problem. Even when scientists have lots of very strong evidence, they rarely claim to have found proof because proof is absolute. To prove something means there is no chance another explanation exists. Even a modest familiarity with the history of science offers many examples of matters that scientists thought they had resolved, only to discover that they needed to be reconsidered. Naomi Oreskes, a professor of the history of science at Harvard University, writes in a July 2021 essay in Scientific American. Quote, some familiar examples are Earth as the center of the universe, 
the absolute nature of time and space, the stability of continents, and the cause of infectious disease, end quote. Oreskes points out in her 2004 paper, Science and Public Policy, What's Proof Got to Do With It?, that, quote, proof, at least in an absolute sense, is a theoretical ideal, available in geometry class, but not in real life, end quote. Math scholars routinely rely on logic to try to prove something beyond any doubt. What sets mathematicians apart from other scientists is their use of mathematical proofs, a step-by-step -step argument written using words, symbols, and diagrams to convince another mathematician that a given statement is true, explains Stephen G. Krantz, a professor of mathematics and statistics at Washington University in St. Louis. It is proof that is our device for establishing the absolute and irrevocable truth of statements in our subject, he writes in the History and Concept of Mathematical Proof. Quote, this is the reason that we can depend on mathematics that was done by Euclid 2300 years ago as readily as we believe in the mathematics that is done today. No other discipline can make such an assertion." End quote. If you're still unsure how to describe the conclusiveness of research findings, keep reading. These four tips will help you get it right. 1. Avoid reporting that a research study or group of studies proves something, even if a press release says so. Press releases announcing new research often exaggerate or minimize findings. Academic studies have found. Some mistakenly state researchers have proven something they haven't. The KSJ Science Editing Handbook urges journalists to read press releases carefully. The handbook, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT, features guidance and insights from some of the world's most talented science writers and editors. Press releases that are unaccompanied by journal publications rarely offer any data and, by definition, offer a biased view of the findings' value, according to the handbook, which also warns journalists to, quote, never presume that everything in them is accurate or complete, end quote. Any claim that researchers in any field outside mathematics have proven something should raise a red flag for journalists, says Barbara Gestell, a professor of integrative biosciences, humanities and medicine, and biotechnology at Texas A&M University. She says journalists need to evaluate the research themselves. Read the full paper, says Castell, who's also director of Texas A&M University's master's degree program in science and technology journalism. Quote, don't go only on the news release. Don't go only on the abstract to get a full sense of how strong the evidence is. Read the full paper and be ready to ask some questions, sometimes hard questions, of the researchers. End quote. Two. Use language that correctly conveys the strength of the evidence that a research study or group of studies provides. Researchers investigate an issue or problem to better understand it and build on what earlier research has found. While studies usually unearth new information, it's seldom enough to reach definitive conclusions. When reporting on a study or group of studies, journalists should choose words that accurately convey the level of confidence researchers have in the findings, says Glenn Branch. Deputy Director of the nonprofit National Center for Science Education, which studies how public schools, museums, and other organizations communicate about science. For example, don't say a study establishes certain facts or settles a long-standing question when it simply suggests something is true or offers clues about some aspect of the subject being examined. Branch urges journalists to pay close attention to the language researchers use in academic articles. Scientists typically express themselves in degrees of confidence, he notes. He suggests journalists check out the guidance on communicating levels of certainty across disciplines offered by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
created by the United Nations and World Meteorological Organization to help governments understand, adapt to, and mitigate the impacts of climate change. The IPCC guidance is probably the most well-developed system for consistently reporting the degree of confidence in scientific results. So it, or something like it, may start to become the gold standard. Branch wrote via email. Castell says it is important journalists know that even though research in fields outside mathematics do not prove anything, a group of studies together can provide evidence so strong it gets close to proof. It can provide overwhelming evidence, particularly if there are multiple well-designed studies that point in the same direction, she says. To convey very high levels of confidence, journalists can use phrases such as, researchers are all but certain, and researchers have as much confidence as possible in this area of inquiry. Another way to gauge levels of certainty, find out whether scholars have reached a scientific consensus or a collective position based on their interpretation of the evidence. Independent scientific organizations, such as the National Academy of Sciences, American Association for the Advancement of Science, and American Medical Association, issue consensus statements on various topics, typically to communicate either scientific consensus or the collective opinion of a convened panel of subject experts. Three, when reporting on a single study, explain what it contributes to the body of knowledge on that given topic and whether the evidence, as a whole, leans in a certain direction. Many people are unfamiliar with the scientific process, so they need journalists' help understanding how a single research study fits into the larger landscape of scholarship on an issue or problem. Tell audiences what, if anything, researchers can say about the issue or problem with a high level of certainty after considering all the evidence together. A great resource for journalists trying to put a study into context? Editorials published in academic journals. Some journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, sometimes publish an editorial about a new paper along with the paper, Gastel notes. Editorials, typically written by one or more scholars who were not involved in the study but have deep expertise in the field, can help journalists gauge the importance of a paper and its contributions. I find that is really handy, Gastel adds. Four, review headlines closely before they are published and read our tip sheet on avoiding mistakes in headlines about health and medical research. Editors, especially those who are not familiar with the process of scientific inquiry, can easily make mistakes when writing or changing headlines about research. And a bad headline can derail a reporter's best efforts to cover research accurately. To prevent errors, Castell recommends reporters submit suggested headlines with their stories. She also recommends they review their story's headline right before it's published. Another good idea, editors, including copy editors, could make a habit of consulting with reporters on news headlines about research, science, and other technical topics. Together, they can choose the most accurate language and decide whether to ever use the word prove. Castell and Branch agree that editors would benefit from science journalism training particularly as it relates to reporting on health and medicine. Headlines making erroneous claims about the effectiveness of certain drugs and treatments can harm the public. So can headlines claiming researchers have proven what causes or prevents health conditions such as cancer, dementia, and schizophrenia. Our tip sheet on headline writing addresses this and other issues. Prove is a short, snappy word, so it works in a headline, but it's usually wrong, says Branch. Headline writers need to be as aware of this as the journalists are.